good morning and uh, Merry Christmas. Glad you could uh, make it here. Uh, we are in a series right now talking about the, the best way to spread Christmas cheer and kind of leaning on Buddy the Elf to get this. And, and so if you're, you're visiting, I want to welcome you. I know it's a, a weird way to start a, a sermon, but um, uh, we're excited to get into Christmas the same way that Buddy the Elf gets into Christmas and the same way that he views, so he's so excited about Santa. And so that's what we're going to be looking at uh, this morning and so uh, about how we can get excited about Christmas again. It was even just prayed this morning in our staff meeting of, I just pray this isn't another, another Sunday for a lot of people and, and myself included. It's not just another, another Christmas or another Christmas message. We've heard it all. I pray that um, uh, our prayer is that this would just come to life. And so looking at this, the, the best way to spread the Christmas cheer is to sing loud for all to hear. And at the end, we're going to sing a song that hopefully we can sing louder than maybe we would have before uh, this, this passage. And so uh, those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian uh, Silver. I'm on the pastoral staff. I'm typically in St. Paul. And so every uh, couple months, I get the chance to come down here and, or, or over here, I guess, and, and preach. And so I'm excited and, uh, to be able to open up God's word for you today and uh, look at something and hopefully sp- spread some, some, some light on something. And so today's sermon is entitled Experiencing This Season of Christmas by Breaking from Everyday Life. That this wouldn't just be another Christmas, that we would look at uh, the season and just be thrilled that when we sing these songs that we know, when we hear them on the radio, uh, that when, that we, when, we, when we see the, the manger scenes, right, when we, in neighbors' yards or in church, church lawns or whatever, that we would feel a sense of joy the way that Buddy, Buddy the Elf can do. So I want to do that by examining an everyday object. And, and before we get there, though, I want to ask a question. Uh, have you ever learned something about somebody that when you learned that thing about them, your opinion of them completely changed, right? You know what I'm saying? Like either, either positive or negative. I, I'm kind of that way. I live up in Shoreview. And so when I meet somebody who lives in Shoreview, there's, I'm just, just my heart is warmed, right? You know me. Right, and, and there's something about, like, I, I, don't, I don't know anything about you, but you live in Shoreview, so you're pretty cool, right? And that's just how I, how I feel. Um, that may be a positive thing. A negative one could be, uh, I, was, I was trying to not, like, name names of people, and, and so what would be a negative example? And I was thinking of Edmund uh, from the Chronicles of Narnia, right? That kid, right? That little spoiled brat punk kid, right? <laughs> Eating the Turkish delights. And what's he do, right? Like, yeah, hey, listen, you're not, you're not a king. Like, I don't care if Aslan invites you back to Narnia. You are not a king. You are a brat, and you will always be a brat, right? <laughs> uh, it's something changed about him. Maybe you, you know someone really well, and you, you have a loved one or a family friend or a good friend of yours, and you go and you get dinner, and they say, I will take the, the prime rib well done. What? No. <laughs> no. Right? You can't, you can't do that, right? Um, I thought you were vegan. No, I'm kidding. That's not what, that wasn't, that wasn't the point. I want to look at an everyday object, and, I, and I, the everyday object that we see all the time, and I've already mentioned it, is this idea of, of kind of this manger scene, right? Your grandma has one wooden or, or you know, ceramic. You see them in, in lawns everywhere all over the city in this, this manger scene, this nativity scene. And I want to look at that, and, and so I have a picture. I think we showed this last year. This is kind of the hipster's nativity scene. I don't remember, but you have the... Um, you have the wise men showing up on segways with the Amazon boxes, right? That's pretty accurate. Um, you know, Mary and Joseph are taking a selfie. She's got a Starbucks, you know, in her hand. And uh, the shepherd there has got his 100%, you know, certified Angus beef with them. And 
And, uh, and I noticed the solar panel on top of the, uh, the manger there. <laughs> that was, I, no, I didn't notice that last year when I saw those pictures. So, um, so I want to look at this, not this one, more of a typical one, okay? This is a typical nativity scene. And all I want to do is just look at it. Who, who was there? Who wasn't there? Uh, was there somebody else there that, that should be in this picture? And I just want to, I kind of want to just look at this piece by piece. And so that for the remainder of this season and hopefully the remainder of your lives, that when you see this thing, you just go, man, isn't God good? Um, and that, that, is the, that is the goal uh, today. Have you ever seen, <laughs> this just came to mind, have you ever seen the ones that like there's a meme where someone put Yoda randomly in there and it was like, my grandma still hasn't noticed, right? Have you seen that? Like someone puts a little figurine and nobody notices it. Anyways, last week, John the Baptist, um, Pastor Cor went and was talking about John the Baptist and how he was announced and he was gonna prepare the way for this Messiah to be born. And so I just wanna go back to Malachi and just read just the, the second one there, Malachi 4 or 5, says, see, I will send a prophet Elijah. And looking in the New Testament, seeing that this prophecy is about John the Baptist. Jesus even claimed this. Uh, I, I will send this prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And what's interesting about these passages and these prophecies in Malachi, that it's 400 years before we get to the scene of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, the Messiah, being born. There's 400 years of anticipation that when the, when the Israelites and the Jews would have read this and would have had this joy of, of, yes, God hasn't forgotten about us, he's remembered us, he's gonna send the Messiah and he's gonna send someone to prepare the way for him. 400 years of waiting that generation after generation passed and died, and then finally we have Jesus being born. But for those years, and we just sang this song, this would have been their heart, oh come, oh come Emmanuel, God with us, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. And they were waiting in hopeful expectation that that would come. And then another song that we sing, long lay the world in sin and error pining. That they are waiting, that they are in sin, and there's no hope because the Messiah has not come. I wanna do something a little differently this morning, and I'm gonna ask you to, to stand. I know it's a little tight in here, and we just sat down and got comfortable. But I wanna stand, I wanna read this. The little kids just read it and sang it, so, so it's our turn now, okay? So, uh, let's, let's read aloud here together um, and just, uh, just do your best to follow my lead. So Luke 2, 8 through 20 says this. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause joy for the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. 
And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Thank you. You may be seated. So the first group of people, we're going to start a little easier. We want to look at the three wise men. And typically in every nativity set, there are those three wise men that are, that are there. And, and why do we have that? Well, first of all, we, we know this. We have no idea how many wise men there actually were. It never says three. We assume three because there are three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Right? Right? We don't, there's no three wise men. We don't know. And they would have had an entourage. Right? They would have had a, a caravan with them as well. But I want to look at these three wise men. Were they actually there? Were they present in that nativity scene? And so Matthew 2 uh, through 1 and 2, and I'm going to have a lot of scripture. And we're, going to be, we're going to be all over the Bible today. And I know in the handout, I just gave you the passage we just read. So I will have everything up on the screen. And uh, feel free to try to keep up and, and flip through and find it. But uh, all the scripture will be, will be up on the screen. Uh, so here's, here's what we have. After Jesus was born, so again, okay, Jesus is born. We're like skipping the, the, the good part. We're going to come back to that, okay? But after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from these came to Herod and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? King Herod was literally the king of Judea. Herod was the king of the Jews. And so now all of a sudden, these Magi, these wise men come in and say, Something's going on here. We saw this star. They tell the whole story. Someone's been born, the actual king of the Jews, the Messiah. We want to be saw a star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So skipping down to verse 7, it says, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. Not a newborn baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Right? They, they came years later. All right? He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship, that I may go and worship him. Lie, okay, he's, he's just messing with them here. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose and went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, not the manger, they, or the, the stable, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And when they had gone, an angel from the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child from his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And Herod does that. Herod actually says, I want you, I want my soldiers to go into Bethlehem and I want you to kill every child that is under the age of two, every boy that's under the age of two. Right, because it's a small boy, we know approximately two years old, so I just want to, want to be safe, kill all the boys that are two and under. All right, so when we get to this scene, all right, I'm not a graphics guy, so I just took black boxes and <laughs> covered, up the, covered up the magi. All right, so, so okay, so based on 
scripture and theology, all these images are wrong, okay? The, the wise men weren't there, okay? But that's an easy one. I think that's, that's most people, I think, know that, but it's, it's cute and it's symbolic. Okay, that's fine. Let's get into this a little bit more. I wanna add something, all right? You may not be too familiar with this, but this is a true story of the little drummer boy, okay? Uh, I'm just kidding. I, I don't have any proof on that. Um, <laughs> but man, how cool would that be, right? This little boy, like, I just wanna... I'm just going to play my drum for this little baby Jesus, right? So we're going we're gonna to put him back in, into the scene. It's, it's speculation, but I think, um, I think it works, okay? Little, little, little drummer boy. It's a really bad song. It's so repetitive. It's not even a good song. I don't even know. Sorry if you're a drummer and that's like your favorite song. I don't know. But... Okay, uh, let's move on. <laughs> this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time, the shepherds. Who are these shepherds? Why were they there? Why, why in the world would the angels go to the shepherds first? But before we get to the shepherds, I want to look and go all the way back, even all the way back to Genesis, and look at when do we first get a glimpse of Bethlehem? And is there any, anything significant about what's told to us about that area in Bethlehem that we're going to see later on in scriptures and maybe give us some more insight to these Shepherds. This is Genesis 35, 19 through 21. Uh, we have uh, Jacob, so it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob has his wife, Rachel, and she uh, gives him Joseph and then Benjamin. But while in the process of, of labor, she, uh, she dies giving birth to Benjamin. So it says this in 19. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephratah, that is Bethlehem. This is the first time we, we have uh, this city, Bethlehem, that's mentioned, the city of David. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Megal Adar. All right, now that's just a Hebrew word for the watchtower of the flock. All right, so we're going to see in Scripture multiple times and in multiple places this idea of the watchtower of the flock, or Megal Adar. What is this watchtower of the flock? This is, this is kind of what it would be like. This is just a, a tower, and what shepherds would do is they would have their flocks out and around them, and they would just get up for a, for a vantage point. This was just an ancient watchtower that shepherds had built so they could keep a watch on their flock. In the basement, in the bottom area of this, is where they would give, uh, where, where the, the ewe lambs, is that what they're called, the, the, the mama lambs, would give birth to the baby lambs, okay? They would take them in there, and, and, and that would be a safe place, a shelter for them to uh, give birth. So that's, that's all it is. That's all the tower of the flock is. It's all this Megal Adar is. But what I want to see, does this come up anywhere else, okay? So now let's get back to these shepherds in Bethlehem. Are there actually shepherds in Bethlehem? Well, we do know that it's common knowledge that Messiah was born in Bethlehem, okay? So we're going back to the Magi. What did they say to, to, uh, to King Herod, okay? And I'm... I'm gonna be all over the place, but I just want you to just, just follow with me, okay? And hopefully we're, gonna, hopefully we're gonna land the plane at the end of this, okay? He says this in Matthew chapter two, four through six. When he had called together uh, all, the, all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, this is Herod, he's saying, he's going to the chief priests and the teachers of, of the Mosaic law, and he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And their response is, oh, in Bethlehem in Judea, right? It's common knowledge, that's where he's gonna be born. They replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you... Bethlehem, the land of Judea and Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
So the, 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 the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, would have read this and said, oh yeah, they read that prophecy and they said, oh yeah, Messiah is going to be born in, in Bethlehem. It's pretty, it's pretty clear. So let's go back and look at that passage in, in Micah. So same thing, you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who is to be ruler over Israel, whose origins are of old from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. And the last one here, it says, he will stand and shepherd his flock. Listen to the, the language here of shepherds and kings. We're going to see that in a couple different, couple different places. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty and the name of Yahweh his God, and they will live securely and then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. We have the shepherd king, and this should remind us of Moses, the shepherd who ruled as a prophet over his people, over Israel. This should remind us of King David, who was a shepherd, and then who also was a king. Alfred Leidersheim, sure, said this. And again, he's kind of going, again, I'm going back and forth here, but he's back in, the, in this nativity scene here. He says, as we pass from the sacred gloom of the cave into the night, its sky all aglow with starry brightness, its loneliness is now peopled and its silence made vocal from heaven. There is nothing now to conceal, but much more to reveal. Though the manner of it would seem strangely incongruous to Jewish thinking, and yet Jewish tradition may here prove both illustrative and helpful. So what are these Jewish traditions to maybe shed a little bit more light on what's happening here? And what Jewish tradition taught, and especially going back to the passage in Micah that we just looked at, just a couple verses right above it in Micah chapter 4, 8, it says this, As for you, watchtower of the flock, as for you, Megal Adar, stronghold of the daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you, watchtower, this dominion, this shepherd king is going to come to you, Megaladar. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. So again, one question that I'm trying to answer here is, who are these shepherds? Because if, if you're like me, if maybe you've heard these stories, the shepherds in that culture were, were the low of the lows. They were kind of the outcasts. They couldn't keep up with Jewish law and Jewish tradition of, of cleanliness, right? There was laws. You couldn't be around dead animals, and you couldn't be around feces. Well, guess what? That was their job, right? So they couldn't just take a week off from work to follow the, the rituals of cleansing in the temple. They had to say, this is my job. And so they were just viewed as outcasts. And so it's amazing that the angels would have showed up to these angels, or that the angels would have showed up to these shepherds, that that would have been the announcement. And that's what I was always taught but I want to look at Jewish tradition and what it taught. And so again, this Megaladar, this watchtower of the flock, was not the watchtower for ordinary flocks, which pastured on the barren sheep ground beyond Bethlehem, but it lay close to the town, on the road to Jerusalem. A passage in the Mishnah, a Mishnah and the Talmud, they are just extra biblical writings of the Jewish people to help them obey the law of Moses, okay? So, so Moses writes the law, Leviticus, the, the, the Ten Commandments, all these laws, and the Israelites say, hey, we really need to obey these laws. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna write these two other books, and if we obey these laws, we'll for sure obey these laws. So these were just kind of extra biblical, making sure we don't break any of these laws. 
So the Mishnah, and I mean, I did a lot of digging this week, uh, looked in this and found this, this passage that talks about it in the Mishnah that says, they may not rear small cattle or lamb or anything like that because they damage the sown fields in the land of Israel. They can't be around Jerusalem or in between Jerusalem and Bethlehem or where this watchtower is. But they may rear them in Syria or in the wilderness uh, that are in the land of Israel. Okay, so they can, they can be out in the wilderness, but they can't be close because that's where our crops are. These sheep, they can't, they can't destroy the, the crops. So that's the mission of the Talmud says this, kind of flipping it. Cattle found all the way from Jerusalem to Megaladar and the same vicinity in all directions, so this circle around this area, are considered, if male, as whole offerings and if female, as peace offerings. In other words, every sheep that was found in between Jerusalem and this watchtower of the flock was destined for temple sacrifice. Keep that in mind. Again, continuing here. A passage in the Mishnah, which we've just read, lead to the conclusion that the flocks which pastured there were destined for temple sacrifices and accordingly that the shepherds who watched over them were not ordinary shepherds. He continues, thus Jewish tradition in some dim manner apprehended the first revelation of the Messiah from that Megal Adar. Now, what, what Alfred is doing here is he's making the connection. He's saying that that Megaladar, as we're going to see based on where the shepherds, what happens with them, he's saying that, that that tower of the flock is where Jesus was born. Now, I, there's a lot of speculation there. Tower could have been torn down. Tower could have moved. Either way, what we do know is that these shepherds, that in that area would not have been these ordinary shepherds. They would have been priestly shepherds caring for the flocks that were destined for the uh, temple. So it says, uh, uh, okay, so I'll just start over here. Jewish tradition, in some dim manner, apprehended the first revelation of the Messiah from, from that Megaladar, this watchtower of the flock, where shepherds watched the temple flocks all year round. And then he says this, of the deep symbolic significance of such a coincidence, it is needless to speak. What? No, tell, like, tell me. I want to, like, what is the significance of that? And he just moves on. Now, then he starts debating, is December 25th, the, you know, the actual day when Jesus was born? He's like, no, I, I want to know, can we go back? Well, we can't. He's, he's been dead for a long time, so it didn't, doesn't work. I can't, can't email him, right? I want to know what's going on. And so had to do a lot more, a lot more digging. And I found another commentary who says something very similar. He says, but these were in all likelihood very special shepherds. We have already seen how in the temple, morning and evening, an unblemished lamb was offered as a sacrifice to God. And we get this going all the way back. We read this just a couple months ago, going through Exodus. It says this. This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs, one year old. Offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. With the first lamb offering a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with a quarter of a hint of oil, pressed from olives, and a quarter of a hint of wine as a drink offering. Sacrifice the other lamb at twilight with the same grain offering and drink its offering in the morning, a pleasing aroma of food offering presented to Yahweh. Two lambs every single day, right? That's 365 days a year times two, right? It's 700 in math, right? I don't know what that is, Okay. But it's a, that's a lot, and that's just for these, this sacrifice. This isn't even talking about Passover, where there would have been tens of thousands of lambs that would have been sacrificed, and their blood would have been spilt and spread over the mantle of every door and every home. 
So continuing on here, what he says, to see that the supply of perfect offerings was always available, the temple authorities had their own private sheep flocks. And we know that these flocks were pastured, pastured near Bethlehem and that from, because of the, the Jewish laws that we just read. It is most likely that these shepherds were in charge of the flocks from which the temple offerings were chosen. It is a lovely thought that the shepherds who looked after the temple lambs were the first to see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, I'm going to read that narrative again that we read in Luke chapter 2, 8 through 20. But I want you to keep in mind now, who are these shepherds? Priestly shepherds watching over sheep that are destined for temple sacrifice. And I hope that we can spread a little bit more light on what's happening. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in Bethlehem, in the town of David, a Savior has been born for you. He is the Messiah. He is the one that we have been waiting for. Oh, come, thou long-expected Jesus. Come, he's here. The Lord. And the angel says this. This will be a sign to you. It's gonna be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. That's not a sign. Those are directions, right? A sign would be, man, this star is just beaming down right where Jesus was born, right? A, a sign would be, there's gonna be an angelic choir that's gonna announce his birth. A sign would be the king of kings and lord of lords is seated on a throne and he's gonna rule and reign this place, right? This would, this would be like me saying, uh, I, I wanna give you a sign that the world's fastest racehorse has just been born. He's in a barn and he's eating some hay. It's not a sign, right? That, that you can say that about any horse. How do we know that this is the Messiah? Again, think about what these shepherds would have done and the deep, the deep symbolicness of these shepherds, not just being regular shepherds, but priestly shepherds. Now, what did they do? They would take this new, they would take a pregnant lamb and they would take it and usher it into the basement of that Megalodon, that tower of the, the flock. And they would help this birthing process. And what would they do? They would take that little lamb and they would examine it for blemishes. They would make sure that this new baby lamb was perfect and good enough to atone for their sins someday. And they would take that little lamb and they would clean it off and they would wrap it in cloths. And they would lie it in a manger so this little lamb couldn't start trying to walk and there's four fall and scuff itself or break a leg or whatever. And they would protect that lamb because that lamb was destined to die for their sins. So the sign here to these temple shepherds, this is how you know it's the Messiah. This is how you know it is the King of kings and Lord of lords is gonna take away your sins. You're gonna find this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. 
I know where that manger is. That this little baby that's been born has been born to die for my sins. I get it. And that these temple shepherds that now instead of looking at a little baby lamb are now looking at a baby boy and saying, yes, it's perfect, it's unblemished, and it's gonna die for my sins someday. That's what happens. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph. How how did they know where to go? Because they knew the story. They knew their job. And when they had seen him, they spread word concerning him. They spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. He was a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and he was lying in a manger. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to him. Jesus takes a break from everyday life to be born as a baby, as a human being that was born to die. And the deep symbolic significance of what happens on that night is mind-boggling that this little baby on the moment it was born was set apart to die for my sins and for your sins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is what we're left with. Little drummer boy's still in there. We've got Mary and Joseph and the baby We've got a shepherd. Maybe he would have brought lambs with him. That might, I don't know, it seems a little unsanitary, but maybe he did. Right, maybe, he, maybe he brought a couple of little baby lambs with him, just for symbolic reference. I don't know. Right? And maybe it was in a, in a cave. Maybe it was in, an, in the back of an inn in someone's stable, for sure. But maybe it was in the basement of this Magalgadar, this watchtower of the flock. Finally, I want to look at this choir of angels and maybe a little bit more tradition and significance that may help us with this understanding this. William Barclay says this, when a boy was born, the local musicians congregated at the house to greet him with simple music. Jesus was born in a stable in Bethlehem, and therefore that ceremony could not be carried out. It is lovely to think that the minstrelsy of heaven took the place of the minstrelsy of earth. And the angels sang the songs for Jesus that the earthly singers could not sing. And I love what Luke Johnson says here, just looking at the language that's used. Can the threefold deliberate phrasing of the Greek of wrapped him in cloth strips, placed him in a manger because there was no place, perhaps anticipate the same threefold rhythm of wrapped him in a linen cloth? placed him in a rock-hewn tomb where no one had yet been laid in Luke 23, 25. So that the birth and the burial mirror each other. As we look at these shepherds, as we look at the symbolism around this, that they would have taken care of these shepherds that were born to die, 
And then we have the author of Hebrews just putting this in beautiful perspective. Day after day, every morning, every night, a priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when this priest, when this lamb had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect. The theological word for that is he has been justified. He justifies you. You're perfect in the eyes of God if you're in Christ. Those who are continually being made holy. Sanctification. I'm justified, but I'm being made holy. So gospel application. Where do we land this? Are you able to experience Christmas by breaking from everyday life? Can we do that? Can we be reinvigorated by what is so important about the birth of Jesus, taking on flesh, being born of a babe, of the King of kings and Lord of lords, setting aside his preferences, breaking from his everyday life, and becoming a sacrifice for our sins? And So one practical, tangible way we can do this is every time we see one of these things, just stand in awe and amazement of what God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit did for you in those moments. And so as we look at these verses, as we look at the, the, the text of some of the songs that we sing, this isn't just the story of Israel. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. This is a human condition that we are all fallen, we are all sinners before God until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Will you bow your head? Will you pray with me as we worship this King of kings, this Lord of lords who was born to die for all of our sins? Heavenly Father, man, you're good. You're so creative. You're so merciful and loving that you would send your son and even in those moments as a father looking down at my son knowing that that child is gonna die for the sins of people who don't deserve it. God, you're good. May we recognize that. We may take a break from our everyday life and just lift up our voices to sing and to praise and to thank the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because it is in his most precious and beautiful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.